You're listening to National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast with me, your host, Saskia Hicking, here to guide you beyond the headlines with news, views and insider truths from across the healthcare sector. Hello and welcome back to another episode of NHE's Finger on the Pulse podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Giles Yeo and Dr. Stephanie DiGiorgio. And today we're going to be discussing some of the stigmas that exist around excessive weight and and obesity. Now that's not just in society in general, but but also across the medical sector as well. I realise we probably have plenty to talk about in today's episode. So I'm going to start off with Giles. If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and letting us know a little bit about what you do and why you've got such an interest in this topic. Oh yeah, so I'm I'm a geneticist, so I study genes, as as an indicated in the name. Um, but I'm a geneticist that studies body weight, um, of which obesity just happens to sit on and one end of the spectrum. So I'm interested in why people are small, medium, and large in this environment that we live in today. And Stephanie, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself as well. I am a GP and clearly see people who have a huge range of body weights and um, became very interested in obesity about six years ago now um, and realised that I was not taught anything about obesity at university. I left in 2000 and uh, it's pretty much been a a field of science that has grown since then really. And this might be quite a vast question to ask straight off but Giles why do we have such a problem with weight gain? Why do we find it so difficult to maintain or to lose our weight and, and perhaps so easy to gain it? It's a it's a good question actually, um, and it might and the the answer might in very many ways seem obvious, but we now know that by studying the genetics of body weight, we are almost by its very definition studying the genetics of how our brain influences our feeding behavior. So put simply, we now know of over one thousand genes that influence our body weight, and the vast majority of them act a within the brain and b influence our feeding behavior. So put simply, some people, because of their genetic makeup, find it far more difficult to say no to food than someone else for a myriad of different reasons. You, you find it more difficult to say no, you eat more, you eat more, you you, you gain weight. So simply, that is that is the, the, the reason. Because of our biology, some of us are more driven towards food than others. And Stephanie, I don't know whether you have anything to add to what Giles just said there, but perhaps any of the societal factors that play a part in this. Absolutely what Giles says is true. And I think what then adds on to that is the environment in which we live um, is different to the environment that we have lived in for millennia. And so the interaction of those people who are more driven towards food and get more reward from food is more difficult because we're in an environment full of food um, and full of food that isn't particularly good for us as well. So it's incredibly difficult. And and once somebody has gained a specific, we don't know yet exactly what sort of extra weight, but once someone has gained weight, their body will work to keep that weight on. And when they try and lose it, it will come back so it's a really difficult mix and um and not an easy one to to manage at all and we say it's not easy to manage but how how big of a problem is obesity not only just for the nhs but society as a whole i think it is a problem that is um much bigger than the nhs the reasons that people gain weight are um or as as Giles and I have said, but it is linked very much with poverty. It is linked with deprivation. Um, and it is not a problem that the NHS 
alone can fix. And at the moment, a lot of the NHS programmes are very focused at the individuals. And what a lot of the work that, that those of us involved in obesity um, do is to try and explain that this is very much a societal problem and we need a societal solution. And so the problem is significant. Of course, those with obesity are more at risk of certain conditions, but it should be treated like any other disease. And we need a, a solution that looks much wider. And we need two things. We need to try to help those who have a tendency towards obesity to prevent them gaining the weight in the first place. And that, again, is a societal issue. We need to pay people to be able to eat good food. We need them to have housing. We need them to have space. We need them to not be horribly stressed. And then we need to provide evidence-based treatments for those who already have obesity to help them lose the weight and keep the weight off as much as possible. So we talk about some of the societal factors there and physically what is needed to help those people through that time, whether that be services on the NHS or whether that be more of an understanding of what's going on in their body. But what are some of the stigmas that exist and that people that suffer with obesity have to endure every day? Having overweight or obesity and moving through the world and living in the world in which we live is very difficult for people. They, The stigma that you mention is enormous. It starts really young. If you look at children's books and children's TV programs, um, characters who have overweight or obesity are often silly or lazy or or greedy or the bully. Um, and that goes on through books, movies, TV programs, all the way through. So people are constantly being bombarded with, with this message about people living with obesity. And that means that people are judged by other people. Um, but it also means that people with obesity develop what we call an, uh, an inner weight bias, a negative inner weight bias. So they themselves feel bad about themselves. They feel like they've failed. They feel like they, they can do anything in their lives except manage their weight. And it, it is a horrible, horrible feeling. And they will live with that very negative inner monologue off, all the time, all the time. And they will not access health care. They will feel they're not worthy of health care. And so the implications for mental health, as you can imagine, are significant if you're having constant negative messages bombarded at you. If you try and go to the gym and people take the mickey because you're bigger, you can't buy decent clothes to go to the gym. You People look in your shopping trolley and go, should you really be eating that? People judge you everywhere you go and it is a deeply unpleasant experience so the relationship between mental health or mental illness sorry and and obesity is a two-way process um and it is a really really difficult one and it's why any good treatments for obesity should really include psychological support as well and we're going to come back to that stephanie because i think the mental health aspect is a huge part of this isn't it but Giles, I just want to bring you in here and talk more about the physical, the, the scientific um, reasons for why this is happening and why people get to the point of even experiencing this stigma. So what what is happening inside our brain? How is our brain controlling our appetite behaviour? 
Okay, I mean, okay, so I'll, I'll give you just a couple of examples, and, and there are many more, and they're not mutually exclusive. This, this is the, the critical thing, there's, there's overlap. But just some, some simple examples. So our brain needs to know two pieces of information, um, two key pieces of information, in which before it can regulate our food intake. So first, it needs to know how much fat we're carrying on our body, because how much fat we're carrying on our body is how long we'd last in a wild without any food. Oh, yeah, your, your, your food stopped today, how long would you live for? So that's long-term signals. And secondly, it needs to know how much you have just eaten and how much you are currently eating. So your short-term signals. The long-term signals come from your fat. The short-term signals come from your come from your gut. So your brain then senses these long and short-term signals um, and then influences your next interaction with a menu or refrigerator or, your, or a supermarket, okay? So I, I, I tell you this because some of the genes influence these pathways. So for example, some of the genes influence the sensitivity your brain has for fat. So imagine if, say I am carrying 20 kilos of fat on me, all right, but my brain only senses that I have 18 kilos of fat. So what it does is it's going 18, 18, I thought I had 20. So it drives you to eat more to try and get you to 20, but you're already at 20. So what happens is you get larger. Equally from a food intake perspective, just from eating, say you've had uh, 1,000 calories for lunch, but your brain only senses 800 calories. You see where I'm going for this? It drives you to eat more, which is why two different people can be sat across from each other, eat exactly the same meal, and one feel full after the meal, and another says, ooh, I'm still peckish, I could still eat a bit more. So those are just two examples. I mean, there are a, a whole lot of other examples that one could one, one could have, but why? people might eat, eat more than someone else or feel hungrier than someone else. And of course, Giles, this is your expertise. You know everything there is to know about weight, but are we missing something? And perhaps we need to understand a little bit more about weight and particularly weight, excessive weight and weight gain and obesity. Is this something that if the general public knew more about it, then this stigma wouldn't exist? I mean, I mean, I have to say that not only is the general public not know, but our healthcare professionals, the vast majority of healthcare professionals don't know this either. And so it is our duty, you know, Stephanie's and, and, and my duty to make sure we bang the drum, make sure we say, look, there are these pathways, there are reasons why folks find it more difficult to, 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 to eat. I mean, the, the problem with food intake and, and feeling hungry is that, you know, you only know what you feel, whereas someone who's biologically programmed to eat less than feel full are going to say, well, but I only had one muffin. Why do you have to have two muffins? I don't understand. You just have to, do, to, to be like me. And that's because the skinny person doesn't know what the larger person uh, feels like. And, and that is part of the problem. And and that's fine. That's fine. I mean, I mean, uh, are they not understanding it? And so I think we need to, we need to then make sure people understand uh, um, that there's biology underlying how we feel and our feeding behavior. Okay, so we talk about teaching here. How hard is it? How hard will this be to educate? Like you say, it's not about society in particular. What you're trying to do here and, and what yourself, Stephanie and, and Giles want to do is inform health professionals a bit better about the trials and tribulations behind obesity. I actually think it's not as hard as it as it could be. So all all healthcare professionals um, continue their education. They all have to, you know, we all have to learn stuff, new stuff all the time. There's new stuff in everything. What's been different about obesity medicine is that it's a new topic. You know, the stuff that Giles does 
pe- people weren't doing years ago. It's brand new. There are hormones, there are chemical messengers, there are things that that nobody will have heard of. And so I think it's really important that we start education programs so that the that healthcare professionals are not judged for not knowing it. It's not their fault they don't know it. They've never been taught it. Um, but now that we do have this information, we need to get it out there. And and so, you know, I educate GPs. Um, I educate other colleagues as well. Um, that's part of my role. Um, and, and what's lovely, actually, is when healthcare professionals do learn the science, they do learn the medicine, and they do learn how to have a really good consultation with patients with obesity, it's like a little light bulb comes on and they're really happy because none of us like to do a bad job, but we we like do something helpful. And that's that's that feels good. That's our job. I think it does. We know that stigma is is unfortunately rife within the healthcare professionals as well. But once they learn the science, that disappears as well because they they get it. And so it's a win win. Um and actually good targeted education that can be quite quick um, is, 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 is happening and it's happening more. And I think we're reaching a turning point at the moment, actually, um, that, that people are starting to understand. We've got a way to go, but I think we've, we've, we've reached a tipping point, which is amazing. And like you rightly mentioned there, Stephanie, everything that Giles knows wasn't a thing x amount of years ago it's it's relatively new and it's very specialist in some senses as well isn't it but Giles what what do you think if you had to give a condensed nugget of information that you think all healthcare professionals should know about obesity or about weight what would it be so I mean, I'm trying to start them young, but I only teach at one institution. I teach in Cambridge, and I just I I am the first lecturer that the that the entire intake of medics in Cambridge sees. Okay, so I teach preclinical. I'm not I'm not a clinician. I just want to be clear. Um, but I teach them biochemistry, and I teach them about um diabetes, and then I teach them about obesity. So look, they may forget by the they're 18 years old that embryos, right? So by the time they actually they actually become become medics. Maybe they'll forget who the bald Chinese guy was speaking to them. But I try, I try. So that that's the first thing. But if I were to sort of distill down what I think um, medical professionals should know in its simplest form, they don't have to understand the minutiae of the details. That's not the point. I think the point is, is first of all that there is a huge distinction between saying that obesity is an issue, okay, and saying that we shouldn't blame the people suffering from them. So that's the first That's the first thing. So you, you got to go in and say, there is a problem here. I'm going to try and help you, Mrs. Smith, solve the problem. And by not blaming them, I think, therefore, you remove the blame uh, um, um, from, from the thing. And that's all people are looking for. This is, I've got a problem, doctor. Can you help me? That's the first thing. That's the, um, then the second thing is that one size doesn't fit all. So, so now you have to not only think about the biology, which is what the doctor is trained to do, obviously, but also think about the lifestyle of the patient in, in, in front of you, rich, poor, parent, um, old, commuter, whatever, okay? You, it, because, because, if, because it's useless to try and force someone to do things if they can, if it doesn't suit their lifestyle, the only way they will be able to do it is if it suits their lifestyle. So I think those two things, if you can get that in there, then you can start to move in and talk about the what drug, what approach, what intervention you might actually have. But if you begin from a position of empathy and you begin from a, a position of, wait, I need to know about you before I can help you, I think those are two very helpful things. So picking up there on 
needing to know the knowledge before you can help somebody have we got a lack of help there is there a gap that is causing because we know you know there's rising statistics for obesity within the country um well across the uk and probably across the world but is there a gap here in the uk that we're not we're not filling in terms of services yeah so i think um there's two issues really one is there's a big difference between somebody who has a kilo or two or three to lose and somebody who has significant established obesity. And at the moment, the system is not set up to really differentiate very well between that. People have to go to tier two services to and to tier three services and then possibly to tier four. And we need to be very able, we need to be able as, as GPs to have, first of all, to have services we can refer to. 50% about of, of GPs don't have people they services they can refer people to. Um, so we need the services. Um, and then once people get into the specialist obesity services, so tier three services, they're, they're treated as individuals within that. There's a multidisciplinary team and, and there is time. It's before that or when people don't have access that it's really difficult. So if I have somebody who, say, weighs 30 stone, and somebody who weighs, I don't know, 12 stone and perhaps should weigh 11. You know, I have the option to send both of those people to a 12-week walking group. That's all I might have. Now, that's, it's not a bad thing for either of those people to walk, but the person who weighs 30 stone might struggle to walk. It might hurt to walk. They may never have been able to. They might be at the back and they might feel bad because they don't want to be the person at the back and and they and they feel humiliated in that scenario so we we're very the system is not set up to tailor for individual needs and i think that until we take away individual blame and and make a, a much better holistic approach to assessing all patients who have obesity and giving them treatments that they need um, until we get to that we're not really going to to tackle the problem um, in a way that is evidence-based for individuals. And and the other thing is, you know, I, I work in an area of really high deprivation. So there are people who live in, for example, houses of multiple occupancy. They don't have a fridge. They don't have a cooker. They have a microwave. I can't tell them to make healthy stews and soups. They don't have the facilities and they have kids, so they they may be living on fast food. So until we manage that as well, we're failing people living with obesity. So I feel like we've kind of covered both here. We've covered the stigma and we've covered the problem itself and how the problem arises with weight. But where does where does the problem lie? Is it with the stigma we've created or is it with rising obesity levels? Where do we place our focus and where do we look to improve this you start giles okay i i think i think it's both i think the the there is a problem there's a rising issue with obesity that is environmentally driven okay so that that's that's the first thing because these genes that make us susceptible have always been there so it's that it's the environment that is unmasking um the situation so the first so the first thing we got to do is we've got to try and think about think about the environment and therefore uh, uh, think about how people interact with the environment but the stigma is stopping preventing the resources the right resources being deployed and the, the resources being deployed in the right place um, because if and you might say well what does that mean so if if the 
if people think there is a broadly one-size-fits-all solution, then you're going to put together a different strategy than something which requires you to look at the individual individual um, patient that, that is actually sat in front of you. And so we need to push that there are different. And, and if you don't believe there's a biological reason for why people are heavier than others, then you're also not going to put the resources in the right place. So I think one feeds in one definitely feeds into the other and um, they're not mutually exclusive in any way, shape or form. I, I think Giles has nailed it there. I think the two interact completely. And I think that as, I mean, the history of why there is so much stigma on obesity is completely fascinating and is multifaceted, rooted in all sorts of, of beliefs. And, and anthropologists can talk about it for a very long time and be absolutely fascinating. It's there. Societal stigma against obesity is there. And so we have to think how we can change that because there are societal stigmas against a lot of things that are no longer considered acceptable and we need to make this one of those you know even in healthcare you hear people making disparaging comments and and fat jokes and and it horrifies me that people think that that's okay but people do and so we need to to, to stop that and one of the things that I think healthcare professionals have a duty to do is to understand the science and then have a very you know, I hate the zero tolerance as a, as a phrase but to have a zero tolerance approach to to that as they would about anything else and I think that we I always think of a ripple effect so I think if one person is setting a really good example then that ripples out and and that's really powerful. It's incredibly powerful. And so I think that stigma in healthcare and stigma in society can change. Um, but I think it has to change. Uh, it will. It has to change quickly for it for, in order for us to be able to do what Giles says and get the right treatments in place in the right programs for the right people. Um, so healthcare has to move faster. And policymakers and decision makers have to understand this very, very quickly, because we are in a situation where childhood obesity has increased dramatically over the last two years. And that really worries me. Um, and obesity generally is increasing. And so we have a duty as the people who who can shape the healthcare uh, provision um, to understand it faster than everyone else. But then everyone else has to understand it, too. I mean, it's 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 always interesting that in terms of weight stigma, that it is one one of the last bastions. I'm not saying we live in a nirvana or anything of that sort, but in our relatively socially enlightened society, if we if we made comments that we do about someone larger, about someone's skin color, someone's sex, someone's sexual orientation, someone's anything, we would lose our jobs. We would, okay. But as Stephanie said, you don't if you at the moment still make fun about someone's weight, and so we need to put. Uh, uh, um, weight stigma, making fun about someone's weight, you know, into the same category as we don't do now. Uh, um, certainly not knowingly, I hope, you know, ab about uh, other people's visual or other characteristics. And I just want to ask, do you think this is something that we can abolish the stigma on? I really, really hope so. I think there is something slightly different about obesity, which is that people with obesity do have increased health risks of certain things. And you but you can absolutely hold two things at the same time in your head. You can know that people with obesity are at higher risk of certain conditions and you can know 
that stigmatizing people with obesity is wrong and that everyone comes in different shapes and sizes. And sometimes when we talk about this, people talk about the healthier every size movement. People talk about um, people saying that that having obesity is is not unhealthy. And I think most medical professionals would say that having obesity, particularly obesity around your middle, is is not good for your health. It doesn't mean you're going to necessarily get ill from it, but it means that you are at higher risk. But that doesn't mean anyone living in a bigger body should be stigmatised for living in that bigger body. That's what they want to do. That's absolutely fine. And we need to create a world where it's okay to do that. We need to create a world where people with obesity are paid the same as people without obesity. At the moment, they are not. They are paid less. They don't, they're less likely to get jobs. They're less likely to um, get promotions. Kids with obesity are less likely to do well in school. That's never okay. It's not okay for that to be due to the colour of someone's skin, and it's not okay to be due to the size of someone's body. And and we have to make the world like that. As, as Giles said, we're not naive. We know that that people can be horrible, but healthcare professionals need to know better, and they need to not do it, and then they set an example. And I'm going to play devil's advocate here and kind of bounce off the other side of that. And you say it's okay and it's completely fine for people to feel or want to be of a larger size. But there's also people who would say, well, hang on, bariatrics are draining NHS money here. And why should we inject money into weight loss services and and operations that come off the back of excessive weight when it's taking up so much of our NHS's money. What would you say to people that think that? I would say that nobody ever says that about people who ride horses and fall off and break their backs or people who go on skiing holidays and require their knees to be rebuilt afterwards. There are many things that people do and ways that people choose to live that can affect their health. And As an NHS, one of the things that we have always been very proud of is that we treat people, whatever they have done, in a way, and we we look after them. When people who smoke get lung cancer, we don't not treat them because they had lung cancer, because they smoked. We don't not give them oxygen therapy or inhalers because they smoked. And obesity is not a choice. And therefore, we cannot say, oh, you're choosing to be fat, so we're not going to treat you on the NHS. Because we can't. Because we don't do it about anything else. And we shouldn't do it about anything else. And and not only that, uh, just 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 to j- jump in there, with most of the other things, skiing, holidays, smoking, um, et cetera, et cetera, it is possible to do and not die. Whereas the problem is you can't not eat. Um, um, you, and, and that's the thing. So the, this is the other difficulty about uh, food intake and, and, and hence obesity is you're asking someone to eat a little bit less of it there, not go cold turkey because you can't do that. And so there's the added complexity of what we're talking about in terms of the of, of the um, biological system, the behavior we're talking about as well. Now, I could carry on uh, chatting to you both about this topic, and I'm sure both of you could as well, but I realize we're, we're getting on now. Um, but how can people get in contact with you both? How can they get in touch and receive more education or reach out to you and get a better understanding of what you're trying to achieve here? So I, I hang out on Twitter a lot. <laughs> I'm at Dr. S-D-E-G on Twitter. 
Um, I work for a medical education company um, and we're just starting a, a, an obesity course. Um, and I've also written free for everybody. So that's why I can talk about it. The Royal College of GPs Obesity e-learning hub um, in which I talk about the science and the medicine and different modes of treatment. So um, that's probably the best way that people can can get hold of me. I'm also on, on Twitter at Giles Yeo is just my it's just my name. I bang on about all manner of things, but largely genetics and largely obesity. Thanks for listening to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Pulse podcast. Join the conversation on social media or get in touch through the link on our website to stay up to date with all the latest news and episodes. Make sure to subscribe and drop us a rating on whatever streaming platform you are using. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.